come down a bit. Yeah. The joys of being short. <laughs> Today's reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 to 10, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope to our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we have lived among you for your sake. You became imitators for us and of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Archia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of God. Thank you. Well, good morning. How are you? Good. Great. Uh, it is wonderful to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Chris, to kick off this uh, series on in, in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, great to be back here as well on behalf of CMS and to be on the platform with Maggie. What a treat. Uh, let me echo what she said, that we would love to hear from you if you are thinking about possibly going. Or maybe your kids. I know this is not the sort of prayer that you people normally pray. Lord, please take my kids away for 10 or 20 Christmases. <laughs> but this is, the, this is the mission that we're on. And there is a cost involved. And uh, I invite you to be prayerful about that. If you are interested in taking up that challenge, uh, do come along to the conference that Maggie mentioned. Uh, or come and talk to me or both. Let me open in prayer. Lord, as we look at your word, we ask for your spirit to encourage us and enliven us, show us your will for our church's life, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I don't want to embarrass Maggie too much. <laughs> However, I do want to say how much I give thanks to God for her and for the incredible work that I'm sure you've, you've sort of seen just a snippet of this. Work that she's been doing now for nearly 32 years of serving Christ in different parts of the world. She served in uh, what was then known as Zaire, now known as Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, 
Ethiopia, Malawi. She was in a role where she was overseeing work right across Africa, uh, and now more recently, Cambodia. And in her work, she has combined modeling the gospel with messaging the gospel, the show and tell of being a Christian, among various groups of forgotten people, and mostly, as we've heard, poorly treated children. And in fact, I think in many ways we could pray the kind of prayers that Paul refers to in verses two and three of our passage. We could pray them about Maggie, couldn't we? But many of us do continually mention her in our prayers, remembering with thankfulness before God her work produced by faith. Her labor prompted by love and her endurance inspired by the hope that she has in our Lord Jesus. And of course, there's been no shortage, as she's told us, of things to endure lately. This has been a very hard year for her. She wasn't actually treated that well by the organization that she'd worked with for such a long time. And yet, she has conducted herself with the utmost integrity and with faith and love and hope. And I think one of the significant pieces of evidence for this is that even though she had to deliver this devastating news to her team in Cambodia, she, she said in, on, in previous occasions that this is one of the hardest things she's ever had to do, um, in a context where finding employment is difficult at the best of times, to a team who had also devoted themselves to doing good, yet despite this, that team stuck with her right through the shutdown period. Her team never turned on her. They didn't shoot the messenger as so often happens in a big upheaval like this. Regardless of whether they were Christian or Buddhist in her team, they could see the character and the Christ-like convictions and if they hadn't stuck with her, actually, it would have been so much more difficult for her to wrap things up. And so God is kind in shaping her like this as a, an example of Christian faith. And yet, this passage is not really trying to get us to focus on a high-profile high Christian or well-known Christians, whether they be missionaries or pastors or other influential people in the church. It's written to the church itself, to the whole mob, to Christchurch Thessalonica or whatever it was called. And so the application of this passage today should actually be to you all uh, more than just to any particular individuals and yet each of us does need to think about it personally. So what did the Apostle Paul want to say to the Thessalonians that God might also want us here in Allgate to hear? Paul, of course, was the first Christian missionary. And he was writing to the Thessalonians as the missionary who had brought the gospel to them in the first place some years earlier. You can read about that in Acts 17. It was a very short visit, quite an intense visit, only maybe as short as three weeks. He'd been to the synagogue three Saturdays in a row on the Sabbath, and some of the Jews that he'd spoken to, as well as some, uh, some Gentiles, had believed the gospel. 
But no sooner was this little fledgling church birthed than there was strife in the city. Some jealous Jews stirred up some bad characters, formed a mob and started a riot. And so some of these brand new converts to Christ had been arrested and dragged before the city officials and accused of treason. You don't really want to be accused of treason in the Roman Empire. They are released, but it's a close shave, and Paul and Silas are whisked away during the night to Berea, where, according to um, Acts 17, the Jews were of more noble character than in Thessalonica. That's a little bit about that context. Surely our context is, is different, I know, but Paul, Paul, so Paul had to care for this church remotely, using sort of indirect communications rather than face-to-face. He'd sent Timothy to them out of concern, that the trials they were facing would unsettle them. He'd been worried that the tempter might have tempted them away from Christ, and we'll read about that when you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. But that's not so different to our situation, is it? We have trials. Um, We are tempted to give up and take the easy path, and so maybe this letter is also a word for us. So with that in mind, I think there are three things that we can take away from chapter one. We're gonna see firstly that we were transformed by power. We're gonna see that we are part of a global ripple effect. And thirdly, we're gonna see that the big day shapes mission. So three points. Point one, just like the Thessalonian church, we were transformed by power. For some people, Christianity is, you know, it's just a bunch of truth claims and it's competing in this infinite marketplace of truth claims and one person believes Jesus rose from the dead, another person doesn't. One person has a particular moral framework, another person has a different one. And yet here in the church, we take our truth claim really seriously, don't we? We call it the truth. And the implication being that we have discovered the truth, we have realized the truth, and now we're in the business of trying to persuade others that it's the truth, which it is. But in this passage, Paul actually uses different terms. He talks in terms of the power of salvation. Do you think that way about salvation? Verse four, he says to this church, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The the power of God was the means of salvation and it was the evidence of salvation. The reason Paul knows they belong to God is he's seen the power of God at work in them. He's seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit. He's heard of their deep conviction. God's at work amongst you. Isn't that awesome? That's true for you too, isn't it? The Lord, the maker and redeemer of the whole world is at work in you. It's great.
One of the ways that CMS tries to engage churches in global mission is by helping to see what life is like for Christians in different parts of the world. What's the church like? What's it look like? What's the same? What's different? It was great for Maggie to be able to show us you know, some photos and talk briefly about the church in Cambodia. We have a podcast called The Heart of Mission. You can look it up on any of your podcast apps. And one of the consistent topics that we raise with nearly every guest is, what is life like for Christians in other parts of the world? And what's clear is, almost doesn't matter who you hear from, that no church is perfect, we get that, and, but what is common is the deep conviction about Jesus and the gospel. It's there everywhere along with the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of Christians. It's there everywhere because God is at work in churches all around the world and it's the same work that he does, different contexts, but the same power at work around the globe. It's amazing. It's not, it's not Australian Christians, it's not just Australian Christians who demonstrate love, joy, peace and so on. It's evidence that we see right around the world. Um, it's worth remembering, isn't it, that your coming to Christ, your faith, was actually a miracle of God's power. Even if you grew up in a family of faith, you might be trying to raise your kids to be Christians, that's great, but whatever you do, don't stop praying that they will become and remain Christian. No matter how good you are as a Christian parent, it's God who grants us repentance and insight and deep conviction. God who transforms us by his spirit. It's so critical that we get this right. He is our power and he is our, the source of our faith. Throughout history, there are numerous examples of Christians who've used, who God used in staggeringly powerful ways and I've read a bunch of examples in a bunch of biographies lately, um, but one of the things that I've noticed amongst people that he gave these incredibly powerful ministries is that almost to a person, God went to a special effort before the unleashing of the power to humble the person. You've heard of Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew took Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Before his miraculous ministry began, his health was so bad he almost died. Same was true for Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission in the 19th century. Same was true for George Whitfield, the preacher in Britain and the American colonies during the 18th century, who over 30 years of preaching is said to have preached 18,000 times. Just see if you can do the, the maths on that. To over 10 million people. Um, and this was long before the benefit of public address systems, digital advertising, or international air travel. Before all this happened, at university, Whitfield had a conviction of the need to be a good person. But he, he tried to do it himself. And he joined the Holy Club and deprived himself of just about everything uh, because he really wanted to be super duper holy. He got so intense one Easter that he became bedridden for seven weeks, just couldn't get out of bed because he was being so holy. 
He was just about dead. That's why he couldn't get out of bed. And uh, at the end of this period, he repented of his sins. He'd probably been trying to deny that there was any sin, but even that didn't fix him. He'd just been resisting the idea that his righteousness would never be enough. He'd heard this idea and he thought, no, no, that's ridiculous. And it wasn't until the day that he called on Christ to be his righteousness that God began to heal him and turn the tables, restore his health. And now he was ready to be useful for God now that he realized where the real power had come from. God wants us to know that he is the power in our lives to save us and transform us. Christianity is not self-help. Point two, just like the Thessalonian church, we are part of a global ripple effect. Now I'm going to reread some of these verses. Listen out for the ripples that emanate out, beginning with Paul and Jesus, and then on to Macedonia and Achaia, that which is Corinth, and then to everywhere. It's like a ripple in a pond. Verse four, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us. So it starts with us, with us and the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to believers in other places, in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And therefore we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves everywhere report what kind of reception you gave us. So this is a church with a reputation. Do you want to be a church with a reputation? Theirs is a good one. They're witnessing for Christ in the way in which they live and the way in which the message is ringing out. And that good witness began with Paul himself who imitated Christ to the Thessalonians. But it doesn't stop with the Thessalonians. It doesn't stop with the church at Allgate. The Thessalonians then imitated Paul and Jesus and became a model that rippled right around the world. A few things, three things to say about this global ripple effect. Firstly, surprise, surprise, it's powered by God. We've already covered that. But verse five, the gospel came with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Verse six, the joy that they had was given by the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, it was the Lord's message that rang out. God's at work, so that's the first thing, powered by God. Secondly, the messaging and the modeling go hand in hand. It's that show and tell of the gospel again, working together. Verse six, you became imitators, which is modeling, for you welcomed the message. Verse seven and eight, you became a model to Macedonia and Achaia, which also went with the Lord's message to Macedonia and Achaia. We, we just don't separate these, this message, the talking about Christ from the living out Christ. So that's the second thing about this ripple effect. The third thing about the ripple effect is it gives us a global perspective, makes us lift our eyes a bit higher than just Allgate and the Adelaide Hills. The gospel is meant to go global. That's what the ripple effect is doing. And the message and the modeling is the mechanism for how it goes global. 
Have you ever wondered, you know, what would be the best strategy for global mission? You know, does, do we just need a better marketing campaign, a global marketing campaign? You know, just hit all the outlets simultaneously with this message that's un, unstoppable, undeniable. Does global marketing, sorry, does global mission need a lobbying campaign? You know, if we could convert all the governments and thought leaders of the world and then filter a strategy and a culture down through the ranks, would that be how we could do global mission? Well, this passage has a different strategy, that it happens via show and tell. And it just, it's the local church that does this. Remember, we've got the power of God. But that the concern of the local church must reach beyond the local area. Our concern is not just our area. Paul cares about Macedonia and Achaia as well and the regions beyond. And when the church does its job of show and tell the gospel, then we play our part in God's global ripple effect. And I, I think this is a really good place to just mention partnering with missionaries and how helpful it is for a church like us to have partnerships with missionaries in other parts of the world. When you pray for missionaries and when you support them financially, when you email them, read about them, obviously you're giving them support, but you're also being reminded of the global nature of the work that we're involved in. It actually matters what happens when the gospel is shown and told in other parts of the world as well. Your good deeds are not just about you and your family. You're listening to sermons faithfully. You're reading the Bible diligently, engaging in small groups and conversations. It's not just for you. Your growth in understanding the message and living out the message, it's not just for you. That's the dynamic through which God is reaching the nations. Through the way his church does it, the way we do our thing. How are we gonna participate better? How are we gonna churn up the ripples, you know, make some waves? And point three, just like the Thessalonian church, point three, the big day shapes mission. Now, I'm not talking about anyone's wedding day, but if you have had a wedding day in your orbit recently, you know how plans for that event can dominate all other plans. I have a member of my team who, over a 12-month period just recently, had three of her children married. Can you imagine how weddings would dominate the headspace in those households. The appalling idea, the horrendous idea that something on the day may not be perfect. Oh, how will we cope with that? Um, well, we need more planning, more contingencies worked out. We just don't want to get to the wedding day unprepared. You don't want to just rock up to the function center on the day and hope they can fit you in. 
You don't want to decide who you're going to marry on the day. You've got to put a bit of thought into that. You don't just put out WhatsApp invitations in the morning. And yet, you know, is this the kind of approach we sometimes take to the actual big day? The day of Jesus' return to his church and the judgment of all the living and the dead? That's the big day. Now, I know it it takes us in a very otherworldly direction, doesn't it? And if you find talk about the return of Christ uncomfortable or embarrassing or the idea of the wrath of God makes you uncomfortable, then verse 10 has just ruined the passage for you, hasn't it? Because we're not talking about something that is native to this world. God is the creator, which means he's not even part of the creation. Jesus came into creation, the word of God incarnate. God is the sustainer, redeemer, and of course the judge of all that has been created. And we people and the people of this planet, we are the pinnacle of creation. We are God's masterpiece. Human beings were not an afterthought to creation. But glorious as human beings may be, with the honor that we have bearing God's image, so too comes this incredibly heavy responsibility to live our lives well. How have we lived our lives? How have they lived their lives? As image bearers, have we done the will of the one who let us bear his image? Have we sought his honor above our own? Have we heeded his law that we had read out for us earlier in the service? Or have we got on with other things? Because, you know, life is busy and there's lots of good things to do. Poured ourselves into whatever it is. Have we kept our creator on the sidelines and sort of said, well, you know, that's nice. You know, sometimes I think about God, whatever. But I've got quite a few things keeping me busy in life. Have we found other things in the creation that deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we value more than the creator? We actually think are better and more fun and more enjoyable than God himself. Now, I don't, I don't know anyone who enjoys talking about the wrath of God, but it's in the Bible. It's right there in verse 10 of our passage, the coming wrath. And even though in this passage it is just mentioning it in passing, uh, we're not meant to gloss over it. Paul will mention it in every chapter of this letter, the coming of Christ and the wrath that sits behind it. So God's wrath, his anger, it's one of the least liked aspects of God's character, I guess. Many of us struggle with this. And, you know, we don't want to say that God's wrath is intrinsic to his character, that he is just always just 
angry at stuff. In the same way that his love is intrinsic to his character or, or his infinitude is intrinsic to his nature. But what we can clearly say is intrinsic to God's character is his perfect holiness and his perfect righteousness. And so his response to human sin, to the attack on his holiness and righteousness, his response as the perfect God is the perfect holy response. It's the perfect righteous response. And what it looks like is his anger, his wrath. His perfect, proportionate, coordinate or appropriate retribution for human sin. And in this last sentence of 1 Thessalonians 1, the tone is not one of bad news or of fear for the readers. Sure, they were sinners just like we are. In fact, it says that previously they had poured themselves into false gods, false trails, and yet they've repented. And they, have, they are waiting for Christ who is their rescue when it comes to God's wrath. Let's read from verse 9. People tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the, the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus is the only hope when it comes to the coming wrath. I can't find any other hope in the Bible. I can't find any other hope outside the Bible. The rescue that Jesus brings, which we've just celebrated in the Lord's Supper, the rescue is all we have. The New Testament makes it pretty clear, Acts chapter four, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So why does the church need to send missionaries to reach gospel poor parts of the world for Christ? And why do we send missionaries to equip Christians in those contexts to share Christ in their part of the world and beyond? Because of the day of the Lord. It's coming. But the coming wrath is not supposed to make us despair, it's supposed to make us declare. Declare the name of Jesus. Because we were transformed by God's power. And we are part of God's global ripple effect. And God's big day brings everything into sharp relief for us. It shapes mission, it shapes life. Mission is about God's power at work through God's people through whom God's message rings out to God's world. He's transforming people, but not just by making us better people. He saved us through the miracle of our conversion. He's connecting us globally with missionaries and with other churches in other parts of the world. And he's sending his son back to us, the only option 
in the face of his coming wrath. And so in the words of the title of this message, I don't know if you have the title in your notes or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but the title is Serve and Wait. We serve and wait. All right, to conclude, first, just back to Maggie. We can entrust the situation to God, can't we? We can keep praying for the young people of Cambodia. We can keep praying for the staff that were part of that initiative. And we can keep praying for Maggie herself and for options for the future. Please do keep praying. Uh, It would be so encouraging for many of us, including, of course, for Maggie. And uh, keep being warm and kind and supportive of her and give her words of encouragement. Um, But above all, keep praying for her. But secondly, in conclusion, the rest of us, let's finish by remembering Paul's faithfulness. Sorry, Paul's, I misread my notes, Paul's prayerfulness. Finish by remembering Paul's prayerfulness. Constantly mentioning this church in his prayers. There's loads to thank God for in each other. Just pause and and do it um, regularly. But there's also loads to keep praying for with each other. And also remember, every single person in this church needs prayer. It can't all sit with the senior pastor or pastoral or small group leaders or whatever, but in your small groups, in your friendships, amongst visitors to church, fringe people, everyone needs prayer. Thank God for the work that he's doing amongst us and continually remember each other to him because God is at work and yet God's work is not yet complete. And so the big, que- the big request to God is, Lord, wherever it should be and however it should look for us, please keep doing your work through us. Let's pray. Lord, how it should look and wherever we should be and what you'd have us do from day to day, we pray that you would keep doing your work through us. We ask that you would shape our our hearts to remember your power at work in us, the ripple effect, the need for the message and the modeling. And Lord, as we consider the great day, um, please help us to declare the name of Jesus wherever we have opportunity. May his name be constantly on our lips. We pray in his name. Amen.